Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome, everyone, back to another edition of New Books in Education. And today, I'm excited to bring on Dr. Darian Parker and his book, Sart and No Child Left Behind, An Existential Psychoanalytic Anthropology of Urban Schooling, Lexington Books, 2015. Dr. Parker, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and, and I'm excited. To, you know, I want to tell my audience that you know the, book, the book's title is long, and you, and you might think, oh, I, I don't know if I can grasp this, but... Um, you make it uh, quite clear, familiar narratives as, as we get into it, and, and you explain uh, some of these theories and these philosophical uh, outlooks very well. So don't be scared off by uh, if you're not familiar with these things. But uh, Dr. Parker, uh, can, you, can you give us a little bit about yourself? How would you get into education, uh, and what's your background? Okay. So I'll tell you how I came to the book. Sure. Right? Um, you know, so I was writing my uh, dissertation at Yale uh, for the PhD in Anthropology and African American Studies. And uh, well, let me back up. I was thinking about what I what I should write about, right? And I've always had this fascination with uh, Sartre and existentialism, and um, specifically his brand of existential psychoanalysis, right? And so I knew that I wanted to do something on Sartre. And then, at the same time, I was doing a lot of tutoring and teaching in New York City. Okay? I was writing the dissertation off-site. Right? I was doing a lot of uh, teaching and tutoring in New York City at the Harlem Children's Zone, uh, which is a charter school based in Harlem. I was also doing uh, private tutoring in very affluent areas uh, for the SAT and ACT, ISCE, in on the Upper East Side, uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, you know, different places in the Northeast. And observing classrooms, being in classrooms, it made me reflect back to when I was in school. And I was thinking, oh my God, I've always hated school. <laughs> I've always hated school because it seemed like something completely unnatural to me. I don't know, it always felt that way. It's like, you know, you go to this place, this building, and everybody has to go to this building for 
eight hours a day, five days a week, and then when you're not in the building, you're preparing to go back to the building, <laughs> doing homework, right? And then you wake up and, and then you do it all over again. And then you do that uh, maybe from the age of five to 18. And then, so you're preparing to, to start your life, right? And then after 18, you go to college, four years. You're 22 years old, okay? You spent those four years preparing to live life. And then you go to graduate school, continuing to prepare to live life, right? So I'm thinking, oh my God, this is like 25 or 30 years of your life that you're preparing to live your life. You know, it, it just, um, it presented a very kind of, tangled existential riddle for me. And so uh, I was having all of these kind of conniptions and flashbacks working with students and being in, in schools. And then I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder if some of these students' experiences of, of the school environment were similar to my own. You know, if, if they felt it was some, somehow unnatural to be there, and then if so, why? And so I started thinking about kind of like the charter school situation and, and how it's enmeshed in this network of funders and well-wishers, uh, you know, people who are kind of invested in these uh, low-income students succeeding and thriving. And then I thought, hmm, what about the kids who don't have the benefit of being enmeshed in this network, right? You know, what about kids in a failing school, right, who are in many ways off the grid, okay? And so I'm thinking about this kind of gen this general experience of, of education that could appear, I don't know, to the human spirit as being somehow unnatural, and then compounded with that, being in a situation in which uh, things are severely underfunded, uh, maybe the building is run down, uh, you know, you, you're kind of forgotten in many ways by, by the larger society. And I was like, well, I wonder what these kids are experiencing too, right? And I wanted, I knew that the approach that I had to take would have to be somehow psychoanalytic. psychoanalytic. And uh, because it posed such um, an interesting riddle of being and and, and who we are and who we become as, as human beings from being in, in certain experiences, um, I knew that I wanted to kind of cross-reference that experience and that research that we sought. Mm -hmm. So that was, uh, that was the birth of the dissertation. Sure. I, and then after the dissertation, I said, you know what, I think more people need to think about these issues. So I revised the book, or revised the dissertation, and that's what became the published work in 2015. Yeah, that's fantastic. Getting, I think the, the every uh, PhD student is thinking like, "Oh, can this become a book one day?" So that's that's great. That that's fantastic that that, that came out of this. Um, one of the things that you talk about is this idea of datification, and that that's a theme that pops up in in the first chapter, and then I think you talk about it later in the recommendations. Um, and that that was sort of coming from the Harlem Children's Zone, and I and I think it help shape maybe what you didn't think sort of education should be. Can you kind of talk about why that maybe inspired you and, and that experience um, that helped set you up to sort of think about um, when you went off to the, the second school um, or when you went off to the, the academy, I think, as you dub it in, in the book? Okay, okay, yes. So when I was at Harlem Children's Zone, we had to do what were called pullouts. 
right? So if a kid was in danger or was in danger of failing or had gotten a substandard score on, on the state examination of the previous year in healing or math, then they would have to do pullouts. So what would happen is you would go to the kid's activity after school, say it was basketball or cheerleading, you know, things kids really want to do. And you would say, hey, you have to come with me and, and get tutored for an hour. Mm. And these kids were so resistant. <laughs> they used to run and hide. <laughs> you know, you got yelled at. Right. You know, you could see tutors all the time kind of chasing kids down the hall. Uh, but it was all to, to, to help them succeed on, on the ELA and the math tests, right? And so ultimately, I think that, you know, when you're talking about expanding students' possibilities in life, right, and, and if you're talking about students who have not kind of had opportunities for, uh, you know, a type of focused uh, academic attention, you know, I think, I think that type of one-on-one attention is necessary. So, I mean, in the long run, you know, it's kind of, um, I don't want to use the kind of ends justifies the means type of logic, but in the long run, it, it was a good, it was a great thing for the Harlem Children's Zone because I run into those kids today and they're like totally different people. They're, they're <laughs> right. in college, you know, their, um, you know, their, their outlook on life, on life is so optimistic and, you know, it's just so inspiring to know that I was a part of that. But... I couldn't help but, you know, to go back to this theme of unnaturalness and, you know, thinking, oh, my God, these kids have to get tutored, you know, uh, two to three hours a week, every single week. You know, I, you know, I was like, oh, you, you know, it's probably a bad experience for them. Uh, but then when I went into the failing school, it was a situation that was way more excessive, right? Because the school was failing. Students were required to take something like 10 periods of ELA and 10 periods of math per week. Mm. You know, it was very focused on those subjects and it was very much geared toward uh, taking this test, you know, at the end of the year. And uh, they were all trapped in this cycle, you know. So you had uh, students who were being forced to take these tests. And given that, you know, uh, the curriculum was designed around the test, well, you can imagine that the curriculum is not inspiring at all, right? You know, real learning, you know, it's not really taking place. And then the teachers who were stuck teaching these things in uninspiring ways, like it would be very difficult for them to, to bring to life, you know, this, this test, model test that the kids were taking. So it was just a very kind of miserable environment. For everyone, for the teachers, the students, and so the word that came to me was this uh, datification, theologism, because essentially, you know, what these kids were uh, to the school administrators, uh, to the larger district, um, just pieces of data. You know, are you a one? Are you a two? A three or a four on this test? You know, that, that was the that was the focus. You know, what what is your score and what is your grade? Right. And it got to the point where the identity of the student uh, tended to be uh, kind of condensed into this score, 
or this grade. Mm. You know, so essentially it, it became synonymous with their identity. You know, at least how they function in the school and in the larger construct of the district. And so uh, that's you know, kind of how that, that term came about. Sure, sure. Well, then I think it, it jumps well into, I think you, you, you cover uh, high stakes testing, but especially no child left behind and sort of the uh, racial hierarchy behind some of some of these uh, high stakes testing that, that came about with it. Uh, can you kind of maybe talk about that or give us a little uh, why, why that's important and especially maybe important to, to this school and then maybe we can jump into some of the school, uh, what, what, you know, what the school looked like and who the students are. Okay, yeah. So... Uh, so as I said before, you know, the high stakes testing, uh, the, the life of the school essentially depended on the test, right? Whether the school was going to survive, uh, into the next year and the subsequent years was dependent on how the kids did on the test, right? And so, of course, if, if you're receiving, you know, money and all kinds of support for ensuring that kids do well on a test... Well, the whole focus of, this, of, of education is going to be the test, right? Uh, so that created the environment. Oh, I heard a beep. Is, is everything okay? Can you hear me? Yeah, we're good. Yep. Okay, okay. So it created, um, you know, this environment. It created the environment in which there was a mandate to have 10 periods of ELA mm-hmm. and 10 periods of math, you know, every single week. Right. Uh, so the, the educational experience itself was compromised by kind of like the trickle-down effect of no child left behind kind of, uh, policies and how those were adopted uh, by the state and then the school district. And it was even more kind of sinister for these uh, low-performing schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was even more interesting, you know, what I found in my research was that um, so uh, – Let's say, you know, that, so the school that I was in was failing and it was going to be closed in two years. Okay? So this is what happens. When a school is slated to close, they go through a process of what's called phasing out. Right? So it's, at first, it's sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. In the subsequent year, uh, for the subsequent year, the sixth grade is phased out and then it's going to be seventh and eighth grade. And then for the subsequent year, the seventh grade is phased out, and then it's going to be the eighth grade. And then the following year, the school doesn't exist. Wow. Well, while a school is phasing out, there's a school that's phasing in. Mm. That school, many times, is, is either a, a franchise, you know, of a high-performing kind of school franchise, or it could be a charter school, or some vision of loveliness that's that's sold to all of us and that's going to be the savior of of this neighborhood, right? Uh, But what happens with the school that's phasing out, money is taken out of that school and reinvested into the school that's phasing in. Mm. So it's very much, if if anyone is familiar with uh, Judeo-Christian theology, you know, it feels very much like a rapture situation. You know, uh, people fear that... uh, well, when, when Christ returns, right, then he's going to take his elect and then, you know, the ones who are, are sinners, they're, they're going to have to remain behind in this, uh, you know, very uh, tormenting situation and just spin for themselves until they're finally kind of extinguished, mm. right? And that's what it felt like in the school. Like, all the resources are taken out. Like, oh, my God, you know, I was miserable as, as a student growing up, 
<laughs> you know, because I thought that the school environment was unnatural. But this is like beyond unnatural. It's it's unnatural. It's cruel. It's it's. I just couldn't believe that human beings so young and impressionable were forced to live inside of these conditions for eight hours of the day, five days a week, for two to three years. Mm -hmm. And the big question in the book is, when you are living, because it is a part of life, when you are living inside of that situation, uh, it doesn't just compromise your prospects for life. It doesn't just uh, cause you to have these momentary you know, uh, experiences of displeasure. It's going to create a certain type of human being. You're going to be fundamentally transformed at your core by being inside of this experience. And so what I wanted to do was see that transformation occurring on the ground. What are the factors that are leading to this transformation? How is it happening? Who are all the players involved? Right. And so you were, this is an ethnographic study. You're embedded in the school for, I think, nine, nine months, I believe. Can you yep. kind of talk about that process? And may, maybe, you know, I, I think you mentioned uh, Mr. Wheeler in the book. So he's uh, a teacher. Uh, who, who's that? What, what, what's his importance? And then uh, also the students can, can give us a sense of uh, who these students are. Yeah. So, you know, I was pretty much a fly on the wall, you know, for, for nine months. Uh, Mr. Wheeler, uh, is a fellow um, fellow educator and, and friend of mine. And that's a pseudonym, by the way. Sure. I wish I, you know, there there was there were so many things that you know about him that that were so great, but you know, in order to protect the identity of the students and the school and everyone right. involved, right. I had to use pseudonyms and so forth. But I I would love to just be able to blast to the world and sing the praises of Mr. Wheeler. Sure. Because he was such an amazing educator. But anyway, so Mr. Wheeler uh, allowed me to sit inside of his classroom, and um, that gave me access to the school. You know, so through him, I got consent to kind of go throughout different classrooms in the school, sit inside different classrooms, and, and see what was happening day to day. I got to interview the students. Uh, I got to work with some of the students because, you know, one of my passions, of course, is, is helping uh it's helping human beings thrive in life. And, of course, education is a part of that. So, you know, I got an opportunity to tutor some of the students, you know, and work with them and mentor them on certain levels. Um, but I got a lot of robust data, you know, about what was kind of occurring in, in these situations. Um, and uh, Mr. Wheeler was a big foil to it all. You know, everything that every educational scholar has said that an educator should be, Mr. Wheeler was that and more. I mean, he just went to that for his students. Uh, he understood the importance of the, the aesthetic environment, and he made sure that, you know, even though the school was under-resourced and the general environment was very dilapidated, that his classroom was an oasis. You know, he wrote grants for his students. He, uh, you know, got all this great equipment, um, you know, so he, he was a grand foil to it all. But what I saw uh, from day to day, so the the building itself was um, it was one of those situations where it was uh, kind of four schools in one, mm -hmm. and this particular school was like on the fifth or sixth floor or something. So uh, 
you know, there are definitely health advantages to going to this school. You know, you have to climb those steps every day. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's, a, it's not a pleasant journey. And then when you get to the top, you enter the, you enter the gym, and it's, it's like this grand um, kind of illustration of colorlessness, right? You know, it's totally the opposite of what you would expect a child's recreational environment should be. You go through the gym, you go into the school, there's no artwork on the walls, there's no paint, uh, there's no library, the walls are very, uh, the halls are very narrow, um, many, of this, many of the teachers had this kind of worn, depressed look on their, on their faces, um, and you got the impression that they were more afraid of the students. Uh, so there was very little kind of authentic engagement, you know, that, that was occurring between the students and, and the teachers. Um, it's not an environment that I w- would want to work in. You know? So, you know, undoubtedly, you know, the teachers were affected, even by the physical landscape of the space, and then, you know, the students even more so. Um, so, yeah, that's just, uh, I hope I answered yeah, Some no, that's the spirit of, of your question. Yeah, no, that was that was fantastic. Uh, but uh, how about the students, though? They they're mostly coming from uh, low income families, as I think uh, uh, classified by uh, Title One or reducing free lunch. I think is the classification. Um, uh, I think you said black and Latino. Most most of the population um, as well. Can can you talk about uh, maybe some of your interactions with? Uh, with the students? Yeah, so the students were uh, predominantly uh, low-income, black and Latino, uh, and this is actually uh, part of the the provision of of Title I, that this particular population has to be, uh, you know, so the goal of of the No Child Left Behind legislation and the Title I part of that was to kind of ensure that the, these disadvantaged populations uh, were uh, kind of on task for ELA and math to reach proficiency, you know, ideally by 2014. And so given that that was the provision, uh, you had the 10 periods of ELA, 10 periods of math in this particular school. You know, that, that had a lot to do with the, with the general environment. But the students, um, I, you know, some of them were diagnosis having uh, learning disabilities, you know, as well. Uh, some of them um, had gang affiliations. Uh, some of them had already interfaced with the, the criminal justice system. Um, and, uh, but interestingly, <laughs> you know, I, I think the big lesson out of all this, you know, going back to the issue of datification, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, if a student is a one or a four or is black or not black, uh, has a criminal record or not a criminal record. When I would interface with these students, what I saw was big ambitions. I saw, I saw human beings. I saw optimism. I saw innocence. Everything that you would expect to find in a child or a human being were present in, in these students. And so uh, if a teacher 
kind of got caught up in you know, the culturally defined choreography of the spirit, the way he or she was acting or speaking, or you know, got caught up in the fact this student had already interfaced with the criminal justice system, right? Then there there were already these kind of barriers for meaningful exchange, right? But the meaningful exchange was completely possible, you know, as demonstrated in, in my interactions with the students and Mr. Wheeler's interactions with the students. And, you know, to... Um, you know, use a term that's that's not really kind of scientifically acceptable or, or quantifiable. You know, if you if you love and, and care for these students, then then you have great results. <laughs> you know, that's what I saw in the school. And if you didn't let all of these other labels become a barrier to your to your interaction, you know, with the students, then then you have great results. Sure. So. Yeah, um, and I guess just keep moving. Moving forward with the book, one of the other insights that you had uh, was from the state English language, the Department of Education trying to close down, uh, you, you sat in on some of the meetings uh, with the administrators. Can you maybe talk about what you saw there? Because that was sort of, I think, your, the future of this school it was about to be going through this the same process, I believe. So. Yeah. So I got an opportunity to sit in on uh, some school closing meetings. Mm-hmm. Right, so there was another school in a similar lo- in, in in the same area that was slated to to close. Right, but the parents were trying to fight to keep the keep the school open. Right, and uh, ultimately they won. They won. You know, it was, it was a big victory. You know, they got some elected officials involved. You know, they won. But some of the arguments that the parents were giving were very interesting, and, and this is why ethnographic study is, is so important, to just listen to people and speak to people and, and just watch and see what's happening on the ground. The, the running theme was that we've been asking for help for years. You know, we've been trying to get money pumped into arts programs and after-school tutoring programs for years. You know, this is what we have done, and it hasn't happened. Right, and so now that the kids are failing, now you want to close the school, right? And the kids and and the parents also uh, did not think that it was a coincidence that as the school was fa- was phasing out or threatening to phase out, the neighborhood itself was gentrified. You know, so you have this emergent gentry, you know, in the area, and of course the emergent gentry. It's going to want uh, a good school for their kids. Mm-hmm. They're going to want to, and they, they're not going to want to ship them off across town because it's all about convenience. People pay for convenience, right? And so as one school is phasing out that's supposedly failing, <laughs> you know, you have this great school that's phasing in, the neighborhood is gentrifying, and so the parents saw this, or, or they saw the motive of kind of exiting out the school as being something uh, much more insidious than just, oh, the school is failing, we need to help the community by bringing in, bringing in another, another school. Essentially, they thought it was more, well, we're going to get this school out so we can get a better school in to accommodate uh, the wealthier population that's moving into the area. And some of their, uh, some of their uh, insights uh, proved... Uh, 
proved very credible, you know, when looking at the research and looking at the patterns and how this sim how similar phenomenon was happening all over the country, you know, in, in urban areas. So sure. it's, it's, um, yeah, I mean, that's that that'll be definitely I think very interesting to see some of those notes that you took or some of the, the research that you compiled that together. Uh, but we're kind of moving closer to the end of, of the interview, and uh, you, you have some recommendations in, in the back of the book, and maybe don't give away everything, but if we, if we could, maybe uh, some of your thoughts on, uh, on, on, you know, I guess, fixes or changes that, that you see from your uh, research and experience. A lot of it comes down to the, um, I'm not going to say that a lot of it comes down to the evaluation process, but evaluation is a big part of it, how these schools are evaluated. Um, it has to be totally different, right? I mean, we all know that, um, well, let me back up a bit. Sure. So, of course, the, the educational experience itself has to be different, right? The environment has to be inspiring. Uh, aesthetically, you know, the, the teachers, you know, who are involved, you know, how the curriculum is administered. Uh, but when it comes down to the evaluation and how you make the, the determination whether or not this is a good school, a bad school, whether the, the school deserves to be closed or open or phased out, well, you have to look at uh, a lot more criteria. You know, you can't just look at the numbers. Right? You have to look at the total environment. Right? And in addition to that, you cannot ignore how history and culture kind of plays into these discussions. You know, so, so for instance, one thing uh, that's, uh, that's documented in the book was the fact that in some classrooms, uh, there are many kids who were below, you know, like, threshold of literacy. Right? You know, they, they, they were... They, they just were not reading on grade level. And the teachers would tell me, well, you know, I used to give them challenging work, but they couldn't handle it. And so I, um, you know, I decided to make it easier. Right? This is what the teachers would be telling me. And then the students would tell me, uh, independent, right? They, they had no idea about the conversation that I had with the, with the teachers. They would tell me, you know, the teacher, she just gives us all this easy baby work, and it's not going to get us anywhere. And, mm. and I hate her for it. So insulting. Mm. Right? Yeah. You know, so you see he's just dumbing down curriculum. But what's happening is that you're sending tacit messages to the students. You're saying in dumbing down this curriculum, you are not intellectually capable. You are not... Uh, and, and, and this came out in some other places in the book. Your culture is inferior. You should act differently. All of these are messages that are being uh, transmitted to the students. They're internalizing it. They're experiencing this eight hours a day, five days a week, three days, uh, sorry, three, three years mm -hmm. of their lives. It's transforming who they are right. as people, right? And so if you talk about an appropriate evaluation process, you have to look at those types of things, right? You have to have a more kind of ethnographically informed uh, evaluation that's looking at kind of how the minds, uh, the hearts, and the spirits of the children are being transformed by the messages that they're hearing and the environment that they're experiencing every day. Yeah. And 
If you don't look at that as a part of a process of reform, then then it's gonna come. Yeah. So, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, sure, sure. I know. I mean, we can't. Yeah, uh, yeah I know we can't get into everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a, that's okay. That's just to, you know get the beak wet, and then you know people can go and and really check out the details within the book. Um, so we're kind of coming up to the to the final question. Um, so do you have any last words on on the book? And uh, usually the final question we also have on the, on the New Books Network is uh, what what are you up to next? Like what's the next project that you? Okay. Um, so, any final words on on the book? Um, no, I just I just think that um, I think it's a very. Of course, I wrote it, so I'm going to think <laughs> good things about it. But I think it's a very enlightening study uh, for anyone who is concerned with policy reform, valuation. Um, it's um, it has a lot of it's it's. I feel that it's something that's needed because, you know, we say all the time, oh, the schools are failing and things are really bad. But the book, it, it's an insider expose of what's really happening on the ground every day with, with these students. Right. And, and it privileges uh, the voices of the students, um, which sometimes you, you don't get in educational studies. Like we get to hear exactly what the kids are saying what they feel about their teachers. We get to hear what the teachers are saying. Um, so I, I think it's, uh, you know, a very enlightening study for, for educators as well. So if, if you're looking to sort of improve your practice or um, strategize better about ways to deal with these, quote, disadvantaged populations. So sure. um, those are my final words on the book. Sure. Um, in terms of what I'm up to next, um, so I started a company two years ago, Parker Academics, so mm-hmm. we do... Um, tutoring and uh, even test preparation, um, you know, for, you know, populations all over New York City and, and even beyond. So, so that's one thing that's absorbing a lot of my time. In terms of academic study, you know, it's interesting. My approach to uh, doing intellectual work has always been to just let the faucet run recklessly on curiosity. So I just kind of read and inquire about the things that I'm interested in and just see where it takes me, you know. And it was like that with Sartre and No, no Child Left Behind, too, you know, because I was reading a lot of Sartre. I was even reading a lot of Bertrand Russell, mathematical philosophy, and a lot of the symbolic anthropologists and, and Freud and some folks. So, you know, it just all came together in that package. Uh, but lately, I've been reading a lot of uh, theoretical physics, Wow. So, so I'm, I'm fascinated with, and it probably goes back to just you know this whole feeling of school as being unnatural in the state that it that it's in. But I'm very interesting. It I'm very interested in these kind of larger kind of ways of thinking that form the outer limits of who we think we are or what we can imagine reality to be. Um, so. Uh, you know, when I think about the, the, the theoretical physicists, you know, they propose all of these things about uh, reality and the way that it's constructed. So I've been fascinated by string theory and its evolution into M theory. And in addition to that, I've been reading a lot of uh, stuff on neuroscience, uh, you know, how the brain is wired and, and, and all that stuff. So I'm curious myself to see where all of that is going to lead me in terms of papers and books and Sure. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a physicist, uh, but I, and I'm not a mathematician. But I, 
I love the subjects and, and I just yeah, I want to see where it takes me. So sure. I'll keep you posted. Yeah, we'll look, we'll look forward to hopefully, you know, merging those two somehow with your, with your passion and, and education. So that's great. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, we'll come, we'll come to the end of the interview, and I thank everyone for joining us today. And I uh, suggest you to go uh, check out Sartre and No Child Left Behind, an existential psychoanalytic anthropology of urban schooling. And this is from Dr. Darian Parker. And thank you for joining me today. And to everyone out there, I hope you learned something. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.